Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Best Pictures Podcast. I'm Ian, this is Maggie, and on this episode, we are doing the 63rd Best Picture winner, Dances with Wolves. Dances with Wolves is not only the 63rd winner, it is also our first winner of the 90s. I just wanted to point that out. Wow, we've done way too many of these. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to start getting into movies that were like released when we were born pretty soon. Isn't this great? I've actually seen some of these before. (laughs) Anyway, Dances with Wolves is a 1990 American epic Western. Ian, do you remember the last Western that won Best Picture that we covered? Because we've definitely covered a couple of special episodes, but do you remember the last one that won? I'm really concerned that it's Cimarron. You would be correct. Okay. The last Western (laughs) to win the Academy Award for Best Picture was Cimarron um, in 1931. It was our fourth Best Picture winner, I believe. Um, So a really long time in between wins. And there have definitely been like other Westerns nominated and I think have won like, you know, non-Best Picture awards at the Oscars since then. But this is the second of three movies that were Westerns to win Best Picture. So Cimarron, Dances with Wolves, and then we'll cover Unforgiven, which won in 1992 in a little bit. But that just... To get way ahead of myself, like Cimarron was actively bad. This movie wasn't actively bad, but I wouldn't call it actively good, if that makes sense. I will get into it. There were some things about it I really, really loved. And then there were several things about it that just kind of left me going like, meh. So I do think the the kind of the irony of Westerns on our podcast has been, at least so far, we'll see if Unforgiven can maybe like change the trend. But at least so far, the Westerns that have won Best Picture, we're not huge fans of, but we've covered some like fantastic Westerns. I'm particularly The Searchers and The Butch Cassidy and The Sundance Kid. And then you had me watch Silverado, which I know is maybe not in the same caliber as Searchers, but it's also a lot better. Ian, I don't know what you're talking about. It is my all-time favorite Western. We'll have to do that as a special episode because it also has Kevin Costner in it although he did not direct that one. Speaking of which, this movie stars, is directed by, and produced by Kevin Costner in his feature directorial debut. I mean, it's a under it's an undertaking for a direct, like a feature directorial debut. Why would you do an epic as your first? That's just, I don't know. That That's like trying to bite off a huge project. Go big or go home, Ian. Well, in this one, no, I'll, I'll be nice. Ian goes home. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, maybe should have gone home, but... Uh... <laughs> It was adapted from a 1988 book of the same name by Michael Blake. Uh, It was shot largely on location in South Dakota and Wyoming. Uh, We will get into the cinematography. Bright spot of this movie for me, cinematography. It is visually stunning. Yeah, like all of the visuals and even the art direction and things like that, I was super on board with. It just was kind of hollow otherwise. Yeah. In getting funding to produce it, uh, Costner had a really tough time due to the unpopularity of Westerns at the time and the fact that the script was so long. But a lot of the unpopularity with Westerns, because I don't know if you remember in like the 50s and 60s and stuff, like Westerns were pretty popular. Like I said, nothing really won Best Picture, but we definitely had several Westerns crop up for nominees. Um, And the genre was much bigger then. Uh, But in 1980... Heaven's Gate, which was an epic Western written and directed by good friend of the podcast, Michael uh, Samino. I don't know if you remember what else he directed that we've covered. 
uh, you always set me up for these and are disappointed. So what did he direct? (laughs) (laughs) He wrote and directed The Deer Hunter. Oh, okay. Well, which because of because of the kind of some of the stuff we covered with him uh, on that episode, it should come as no surprise that uh, Heaven's Gate production was fraught with issues, incredibly expensive, and an absolute critical like critical and box office failure. And it kind of killed the genre of westerns for a little while. So, getting funding for Dances with Wolves was really difficult, but it kind of created this renaissance in the genre. Um, like I mentioned, you get another Western winning Best Picture in a couple years, uh, Unforgiven. And I think there are a couple other Westerns that like kind of come out in the 90s as well. Nice. I am kind of glad for that. I just, I don't know. Like I said, wished it were more. No, agreed. A couple other notes on production. So the Lakota dialogue was translated by Doris Leader Charge of the Lakota Studies Department at Sente Gleska University. Um, and at the time, at least it was definitely like, there was some mixture of like praise and criticism around like the portrayal of the Sioux and also, you know, just the general dynamics in the film. Um, you know, there is some criticism that it's a little bit of like a white savior story, which I think is definitely valid. But then there are also members of the Lakota and Sioux community at the time that were like praising it because it is a much more like positive and accurate portrayal than a lot of previous Westerns. Um, so definitely kind of like a stepping stone as far as representation. Uh, they ha- actually had cultural advisors on this movie and uh, you know, like the casting, you have people who are members of the Sioux nation and several of the parts you have people who are of like, indigenous American descent in those roles for like members of the Lakota. So, you know, we're doing better. (laughs) We've come a long way since Cimarron. Definitely still, you know, more to go, but we've come a long way. (laughs) Which I will 100% give the film credit for coming a long way, but I still, I am very strongly on the side of it is absolutely a white savior narrative and I'm not here for that. I mean, I think one quote that I that I saw, um, which I think is always kind of the key to remember, is they were like, yeah, like, you know, it it's a positive portrayal and, and everything, but you still have to remember whose point of view the story's being told from. Right. And it felt like it leaned into the, uh, like, noble savage uh, stereotype that you so often see with the portrayal of Native Americans. I saw that criticism as well. So, and I mean, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd agree. I, I feel like there was not too much attempt to really delve into the Sioux Nation side of things, which, I mean, to your point, it is from the point of view of Dunbar. So right. I get why, but that doesn't mean that I'm willing to just excuse it. Agreed. And I, I just, I think in general, like the social dynamics among all the characters in the movie really could have been a lot more nuanced and complicated. And I, they felt somewhat simplistic for sure. I will say at the time of recording this, both the theatrical cut and the extended version are available on HBO max. We will be covering the theatrical cut because that is the one that won best picture. Although I believe the extended cut was released pretty soon after the theatrical one. Like I said, it was a, huge critical and like 
popular success. So there were a lot of people who were like kind of like clamoring for like a sequel and stuff. And so then apparently they're like, we'll just cut an extended edition. Yeah, a four hour extended edition. It didn't need three hours, let alone four. Like what? I'm I'm sorry. I just. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm with you. Um, it was nominated for a lot of stuff. It won quite a bit. So Costner won for Best Director, which like I can kind of see like it, there is a very clear vision to this movie and it is very like cohesive. I feel like some of my problems with it are very much based on the writing. Costner was nominated for Best Actor, but didn't win. I'm okay with that. I don't think this is his best work. And I love Kevin Costner, but I don't think this is his best work. Totally agree. And I'm, again, your point about the writing, I wonder how much of that has to do with that because the character is uh, very flat. (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. Graham Greene, who plays Kicking Bird, was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. I really like him in this, but I I feel like there's just not enough depth to his character or any of the characters really to like earn a lot of the acting noms. Like, I mean, the, clearly doing the best he can with what he's given, but like, I feel like the character could have been more. Mary McDonnell was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, but didn't win. Uh, she plays Stands With Fist. I actually did really like her. And I, that that is the acting nom that I think I can kind of see because of the scene. I think we'll talk about it more, but where she's interpreting. But it's clear that like she is struggling a little bit with English because it's been so long since she's used it. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought she did a really nice job with that. It won for Best Adapted Screenplay. Michael Blake won for that. Um, Meh on that. It was nominated for Best Art Direction, which I can see. Dean Semler won for Best Cinematography. 100% earned. It is, Mm -hmm. again, visually stunning. Nominated for Best Costume Design. Won for Best Film Editing, which I can kind of get behind. John Barry won for best score. That's another one that I think is absolutely deserved. I love this score. It's so pretty. And it's just like a classic Western take. Now, I think there were a couple spots where maybe it was a little overwrought, but on the whole, I'm okay with it. I just love the main theme of that. We played it um, in my orchestra in high school, and it was like a really fun one to play. And then it also won for best sound. Eh, sure. Yeah. 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 I'll give it to that. Uh, other nominees from that year, Awakenings, Ghost, The Godfather Part 3, and Goodfellas. So guess what I'm really glad didn't win? A gangster movie. <laughs> have you not seen Goodfellas? I actually don't think I have seen Goodfellas. I think Patrick has tried to make me watch it, but... It is great. Um, I would actually kind of have preferred the Goodfellas one over Dances with Wolves. Ooh. Um, I get why it didn't. It's not... I don't think it's like as like prestigious a picture. And then you probably have it going up against Godfather part three, which I'm guessing just got a nomination because everyone was like, Oh, another Godfather. Mm-hmm. But, um, cause I've, I've not watched it. I most likely won't, <laughs> um, but I've heard it is the worst of the three, but yeah, I actually would have been okay with Goodfellas winning. It is, it is a fantastic movie. I would absolutely recommend it. Hmm. Noted. I'll have to watch it. Cool. Jump into watch notes. Yeah, let's. 
So can I just say that I cannot stand the character of John Don Dunbar from like the very beginning of this. So Oh, I liked him and I liked him at the beginning, like in that very first scene. So I thought the very first scene did a really nice job of like I, it was the strongest I think we got to any hint of personality in him with like this just determination and will to survive, which I think could have been leaned into a lot more in the rest of the film. And we start with him in a very sympathetic situation where um, he's a lieutenant in the Union Army in the middle of the Civil War. Clearly, there's like some battle that's just happened and they're the doctors are preparing to amputate his foot. And then the doctors basically have to take a break and he comes back to consciousness and realizes what's going on. We get some really gruesome. This was a very gruesome movie, actually. We get some very gruesome shots of some medical implements. And um, I had to pause the movie and go finish my dinner <laughs> before I continued watching. But he decides that he's not going to let this happen. He There's the scene of him like forcing the boot back onto the wounded foot. Um, and he like breaks some some sort of wooden utensil or stick or something to stick it in his mouth so that he mm-hmm. won't scream. And I thought Costner did a really good job in that scene. I thought it immediately built a sympathy with this character. And then it also gave us a look at like his just sheer determination. Now, the next little bit, which I'm going to hand over to you, and I think is where you're <laughs> going to say you immediately didn't like this character, was the bit where they started to lose me. And we never really got back no. to a point where I was super sympathetic with him like i didn't i didn't dislike the character like he's he's not a bad guy he's just kind of boring yeah he's boring and also he's been rewarded for bullshit behavior which i know i know you felt the first scene was sympathetic but i personally thought that that first scene was like the peak of idiocy like if you really have to lose your food, I don't know. It's I get that it's a very grim diagnosis, especially in the eight, late 1800s. But I was going to say, Ian, if you just, got, if you got a limb amputated in the late 1800s, especially on the battlefield and civil war, like your your chances of dying are exponentially like. But was it higher than leaving a gravely injured foot just on your person? Potentially, like I, I think at that point you are in a crapshoot. Like, well, because clearly I feel like he actually wasn't as injured as they make him out to be because of some stuff that he's about to well, do. Yeah, but like, like <laughs> I don't know. I, I have a feeling that they, they were a little saw happy. Saw happy. <laughs> yeah. I, I have a feeling that when you're going through that many injured people, you're like, well, we're just going to take it out. Like no one's, you know, people, they're not sitting there being like, oh, well, actually we could save this one with some physical therapy. <laughs> I mean, fair. I don't know. I still, uh, it, it just started for me, him on this like downhill roll of making rash decisions that especially in the next scene. So let me just get into that. Yeah. The next he, scene is where he lost me. This is exactly. the part where I think you're being like, this is dumb is very valid. And yes, he's rewarded for stupid behavior, but that's uh, not his fault. Well, that that's, that's fair, but he he's talking, th- there's a, a setup of a battle with Confederate soldiers and everybody is just sitting on edge across the field, looking at one another. He is the one that decides to, I don't know, steal commandeer a horse and have this like two pass ride past the Confederate soldiers. And they, I mean, given what they were shooting, I'm not surprised they didn't like hit him at all, but he's having this like literal attempt at ending his life. 
by like soldiers on the other side i don't know because his his foot injury i'm guessing he's thinking that's basically a, a death sentence so he's like i'm gonna go out in a blaze of glory i i struggled understanding the motivation for this scene because when it starts off it's him and i think like a sergeant or somebody in you know part of his like company battalion whatever that guy's talk well one dunbar's clearly in shock and then this guy's talking about how like, oh yeah, they're set up over there and we're set up over here and eventually one of us is gonna charge each other and like, oh, the major's over there and he's, this is what he's thinking and then he's worried because the general's right over there and the general doesn't know what to do, but the major thinks that he has to do something in order to like approve the general. It was this great little spiel just like outlining the ridiculousness and the stupidity of like war and their situation and kind of the futility of it. So then when Dunbar's looking at the horse, he's going to steal the horse. I was like, oh, he's going to steal the horse and ride out into the wilderness. And then it's like, no, he was going to do the weird pass in no man's land, basically, and potentially die. But then he doesn't, although it's shot really pretty. And you've got the really pretty shot that made me think of Platoon, where he's just riding no hands, like hands kind of up to the sky as if kind of like it's in God's hands now or whatever, I think is what they were going for. But it just it didn't make a ton of sense like i was like i don't understand why why he's doing this it just it felt you're right like it just felt and it was stupid and futile and like didn't build sympathy for the character like it did nothing except give him a reason to be rewarded and re like assigned at his request to the frontier like it it was the hollowest of motivations and because what happens is like him doing that spurs the Union soldiers to like make the push and take over the Confederate position. And of course, he everyone's like, you're a hero of oh, what was it? Somebody literally says, um, we got an officer who's worth something lying here. And I, my note with that was like, that was not a strategic move. Like, that was really stupid. No, it was. And it, like, actively could have endangered the entire company. So I... Yeah. I just... No. I'm... No. <laughs> but we do learn that because, quote, somebody's worth something, he requested and was granted a reassignment out to the frontier. And again... And the best part is the movie could have started with him being assigned to the frontier. And right? honestly, if if he had gone... If he had had to go to the frontier against his will... That Would actually gives us better. more room for a character arc. Mm. And it was, this is like peak manifest destiny of him too, where it's like, oh, I'm going to, well, maybe not so much, but he did. He's, he's very much romanticizing the frontier. Yeah. And it's like, I'm going to see it before it's gone. He I, never uh, really stops. And what bothered me was I was like, when he had that attitude at the beginning, I was like, okay, is he going to go out there and then learn that like everything's not as beautiful and simple as he thinks it is that like it's tough out there and there's complicated stuff going on and everything but that's not really where we went what really annoys me about that arc is we could have had it but instead well it's like they tried to go that way but didn't so they start with the major or commander type person who is a complete and utter pig who I guess so quick trigger warning def going to talk about suicide for like half a second this dude is drunk behaving like a pig and then on the way out on john's way out this commander kills himself he's clearly he's he's clearly nuts initially i actually thought he was making fun of dunbar and i kind of liked it when he was calling him knight 
and Sir Knight. And I was like, ooh, what a dig. And then he did like a couple other things. I was like, oh no, this man's just insane. And drunk off his ass. Like, right. I, <sighs> I think the reason that that happens is because it's like this. And then there's another death later that I think they're there because it means that there is no record of Dunbar being assigned out there. So oh. therefore. I, like people don't know he's out, but like it's so I, the only I reason we, I disagree with you on that is because they tell us in great detail with very unneeded voiceover repeatedly what exactly is going on. <laughs> well, no, but when the at the end when they when the army shows up and they're like, "Who the fuck are you?" Like, there's no record that he went out there. Oh, I thought that was just because he was dressed like an Indian. I think that was also it. So again, didn't actually need any of that other stuff um, because yeah. they. Those soldiers have multiple, like, for multiple reasons, are multiple reasons that don't fully make sense. I will come back to it. Are mean to him at the end. Mm -hmm. uh, mean was a very <laughs> was not a powerful enough word. Uh, no, it was it was an understatement, we'll but it's okay. We'll get there. Uh, do, do you want to talk about the voiceover for a little bit because it starts here and oh god, it's so deadpan. That's one of my biggest issues with it. And what I It's I'm, also not needed at all. Oh, not at all. I remember I'm trying to remember specifically which scene it was, but I thought to myself, you're literally showing me what you're telling me. So why did you bother with this voiceover? I think it was probably some of the celebration scenes with the Lakota. And it's my interpretation, and I need to actually maybe research this to see if I'm right or not, uh, is that they were like, let's pull some passages from the book so that it is like connected to the source material and have him say it. And why? Why would you do that when you have a film that can give a much richer, literally three, well, not literally, but three dimensional like view of what is going on? It's just we've said this multiple times where if you're going to do an adaptation, make it an adaptation. Don't try and make it just like a perfect facsimile of the source. Well, and like you said, the visuals in the movie are so stunning and actually like, and Costner is a good actor. So like at no point did the voiceover ever add anything for me. I'm like, I fully got that from like the performances and the visuals. Like I fully understood. And then to have the voiceover, I was like, I didn't need it. And then it's, bad voiceover mm -hmm. which makes it even worse i feel like maybe the the whole point of the voiceover is that it, it constantly brings back that journal he's writing in which becomes this macguffin at the end but i hate i hate the oh, stupid journal i, I got more too. thoughts on the journal Same. we'll talk about the journal later careful i'm about to, oh, i didn't know this was going to be such a roast but it, it's about to be <laughs> i i think i think we're frustrated with it because the elements are there and it has the visual and like aural trappings of a really great Western epic. And yeah. And then yes. doesn't deliver. Yeah. I think, th I think it's more that it's not that we're like roasting it. It's just that we're like frustrated with it. So frustrated. But to go back to the like lost cause, you were in this like really dark place in the country thing. They have that one like mule driver take him out to Fort Sedgwick, which is... Uh What's his name? I oh, oh I, I can't even remember. I, but he is the I love grossest him. He's human. so good, though. He's <laughs> disgusting. Um, but what is oh, what is his name? Timmons, played by uh, Robert Pastorelli. Uh, Timmons is absolutely vile and disgusting. And I think uh, Dunbar says that in one of his voiceovers, to which I responded, "I c I can see that." 
Yeah. I understand he is vile, but the performance is great. Like it's Pastorelli goes like goes for it. He uh, he absolutely does. I I do appreciate the commitment. But And I love the the him like rustling the stick. <laughs> like what is <laughs> to that? Just like annoy Dunbar and be like, "Oh, what is it? What's out there?" <laughs> it is some comedic relief, but I I will go back to like again, this is a lengthy movie and we're almost half an hour in even before we get to Fort Sedgwick and I still don't have a good motivation for why to care about John Dunbar. I don't have a great sense of his character. Like he just seems like kind of a mellow lost person, which is fine. But like, what's he going toward? Why does he want to see the frontier? Like, why does he want to leave the fighting in the East? Like, am I supposed to make assumptions or understand this? I, I mean, I think there's like some things you can extrapolate, like obvious, but like, I just, I want, I wanted more. And like, the, I think the problem is he never goes from this like mellow lost soul to anything different. Yeah. Really. Yeah. So like, I just, I wanted, I wanted more levels. I wanted something, I wanted something from the character. Mm-hmm. And I think this is our, at least my frustration is, is doubled down. Like when he, he actually gets to the fort and is experiencing the, the, the frontier. Fort. Oh yeah, the the sod shack of a home on the <laughs> the prairie. I, I was getting the like negative ex- excitement from him, and so if this was something that he was like really interested in seeing, I would expect to see at least some. It, it doesn't need to be like jubilation, but I, I'm. Why am I seeing the same note that I saw? in the battlefield to some extent like it just i i didn't get levels here and i I, mean i was fine with the reaction to the quote-unquote fort um i wanted them to lean a little bit harder into this like potential theme that could have been recurring of like a um his expectations versus reality yeah which i think could have been fun to play with i there is also the moment where Timmons is like, nah, man, let's just get out of here. Like, clearly they were all killed. Let's leave. And he's like, no, I'm staying. And he pulls the gun on Timmons. And it to me, that was kind of like a, oh, he is so dedicated. Because he's. I think his point is like, this is my post. This is mm-hmm. my job. This is my duty. And I was like, if they'd leaned harder into that at the beginning, then it could have been more of a transformation when he decides to leave all that behind. But there wasn't quite enough of that to really make it like a theme or an arc. Mm-hmm. So missed opportunities. There are a couple of things kind of in this like rebuilding section that I want to talk about. Uh, there's some beautiful cinematography. I love the scene, how this was shot, paced, Costner's performance in it. Perfect. Where he's sleeping and he hears something moving outside of like the little cabin he's staying in this he has his perfect. gun <laughs> and it's pan- the camera pans with him around the room like as if you're from his point of view kind of tracking the noise until it comes to the door frame and then we have the requisite western door frame shot we get a couple of those thank you the searchers and it's his horse that moves to the door frame and he just goes bad horse. <laughs> that was one of my favorite reveals. It was so good. Yeah. It was funny. It was good. It told us something about his character and the fact that he like is really nervous here and stuff. But um, you, we don't, we don't get as many of those types of scenes as I wanted. Sadly. 
But we do see him kind of bringing the fort back to some extent. He finds like a very creepy deer under the water, which like that, apparently I really don't like dead things under the water looking at me, which I maybe is reasonable, but Shocker. That, that freaked me out, um, <laughs> like weirdly. And we also get the wolf introduction, which, what do you call them? Like black, black socks, socks, something like that. Two socks. Two socks. Two Thank socks, you. <laughs> the wolf is another thing though. And maybe this is because the movie is so long. And I understand what the wolf is supposed to represent. It's supposed to represent his bond with nature. It's why he later is called Dances with Wolves. The wolf kind of comes around and saves him at the end. There's a particular shot with the wolf that I know was supposed to be like symbolic and cinematic. Because the movie is so long, I feel like the wolf isn't as big of a symbol as it should be. And it's not like the only symbol either. Like the like his horse ha- has kind of some symbolic meaning and stuff too. So I just uh, I either lean more into the wolf or leave the wolf out. Yeah, and I, it's still that one of my biggest issues with this film too is that it's extremely heavy-handed in many of the the themes that it deals with and the wolf is one example and it's only amplified by the fact that had a little bit harder with your symbolism please right and it's only made worse by the fact that you also tell me in voiceover that the wolf is hungry and won't eat from your hand like why i can see all of this and imagine how powerful it would be to have utter silence for that entire segment like that could be really cool well not silence but just no talking him in his solitude on the frontier communing with nature like i i think that the voiceover in particular cheapens that aspect of it i 100 percent agree it like ruins scenes for me that being one of them can't stand it again just stop telling me (laughs) i know i can see now we do get some introduction to native americans on the prairie and so the guide uh you said this is the pawnee so they're the pawnee are set up as kind of like the villains and then you have like the lakota who become like his friends and allies again though it's kind of like the same with the wolf right like they set this up as if these are going to be like the big villains but it doesn't like there is a fight at one point, but it happens like partway through the movie and it's not the climax. And it kind of leaves me with a like, oh, you could have just taken all of this out and not have really affected the movie. And it would have been a much shorter runtime. Uh, yes. Yes. Though we do get some fantastic performance from uh, Wes Studi who plays the like mean leader of the Pawnee. He's so good at playing villains in like a couple years after this movie, he goes on to play Magua in last of the Mohicans. Who's like the big villain in last of the Mohicans. And he's so good. So anyway, I was, I was happy to see him. I was happy to see him, but I was like this whole plot thread. Like it doesn't, it doesn't really gain us much from like a narrative point of view. Agreed. It does increase the general sense of just like suspense. And I think, I don't know, there's a, the stereotype is that Pawnee group. And I don't think that we needed to be shown it to understand that stereotype. 
I think it would have been interesting or more interesting um, had we gotten the introduction um, to Kicking Bird without having that particular visual before and seen John's own reaction to that and how it is dispelled through the the relationship building that he has. So yeah, I cut it. <laughs> this is rapidly turning into a maintenance episode, but that's fine. <laughs> I know. Um, I will say there is a brilliant bit of editing that happens though, where you have the Pawnee group. Uh, well, first we have uh, the shot of Dunbar burning that like cow corpse that he pulled out of the river, which I hope he boiled his water. But that like goes up in flames and it's like a bigger fire than he's ready for. And then it cuts to you have the Pawnee party with like this cloud of smoke in the distance being like, um, what do you think it is? Oh, only like a white man would be stupid enough to light such a big fire out here. And like, we think they're going to go for John and it cuts to Temmins. So I thought that was just like a lovely bit of like editing that kind of like misled us. And then we have Temmins dying. Mm -hmm. But again, didn't, didn't need it. Editing agreed. (laughs) So we do see kicking, I believe it's kicking bird. Who's investigating the, the fort and. Oh, we got a butt. Oh, we did. We got a butt. We, we, get, he was... we, get, we get a butt in this scene. This yeah, is the scene where we get the bathing, butt. bathing, notices somebody poking around at the fort and like runs up to Kicking Bird. Understandably spooks, Fully I think, nude. both of them. Oh, yeah. He is like, I don't, he has a gun, right? Like he manages to find his gun, but that yeah, is literally it. Which I, is funny. Oh, there was a particular, there's a particular line in the voiceover after that scene that says, when I appeared, he became frightened and ran off for some reason, or he became frightened and ran off. And I was like, dude, you forgot, like you left out a very important detail. Yeah. You looked insane. Of course he's going to run away. <laughs> <laughs> Just this like naked stalking, like stalking angry dude, like coming up to you with a pistol, like yeah, no wonder Kicking Bird ran. Um, mm-hmm. But also, he he was just like investigating. I also was like, I wonder if it's weird if you're like the actor director to be like, yeah. So everyone, I'm gonna be nude in this scene. <laughs> <laughs> I will just be balls out. Nah, he probably had some sort of uh, covering. <laughs> I know. I just, I was just like, that's. I was just like that. That has to be a weird dynamic. Uh, yeah, that's um, for sure. Anyway. So now we get kind of uh, the beginnings of interactions between the Lakota, the Sioux, and uh, John. So in the very first meeting at the um, Sioux encampment, we get this somewhat heated meeting between all of the, um, I, I presume, leaders, men of the tribe, talking about like what to do about this. And there, there is like kind of a split opinion where you have kind of like the older chief saying like we don't really need to do anything you have some younger members of the tribe being like this like this is bad like yeah it's only one guy but like there will be more of them not wrong no not at all and i mean the ultimate thing is they don't they decide to pretty much let it let it lie like not yeah except for those kids that decide they're gonna go steal that horse yeah which was kind of a funny scene because it it was like okay cool you have these like really gung-ho teenagers that are like wanting to prove themselves and do something thrilling like in the young night. teenagers oh, they're yeah, like they're 13 12, and 14 13. 
and they try to steal his horse, but I do love that the horse keeps coming back to to John because it's not the only time the horse has tried to be stolen and not the only time it returns. <laughs> Everyone wants that horse. Man. I know. It's a pretty horse. It is a perfectly cast horse. Now, I do love that the people who end up killing him are other soldiers. Like, that is, I think, a beautiful, yeah. like, end to that arc. Really sad, but also, like, ooh, that was, that was tasty. But again, again, like, just hit me with that symbolism a little harder, please. Like, come on. Okay, had they not had all of the damn voiceover, I wouldn't have minded. <laughs> the, the society, I know, the voiceover makes it worse. But, like, the society, but they, they do it with both the horse and the wolf later. That, like, the society he's running from, the one that he, you know was born into but doesn't feel a part of is like the one mm-hmm. that kills the things that he considers most important and like most representative of him. Yeah, it just uh it's very heavy-handed. Um but with all this, John decides to go and actually I visit the the tribe. I love the effort that he puts in to being super formal and literally polished with his like high uniform. Like it is so formal and he's riding out with a flag, like with the flag. Yes. What is going on? I know. I know. I was like, I was just like watching that and I was like, what do you think this is going to do? Like, yeah, he needs to read the room. Like that's not going to be seen as anything that is like friendly when you're coming up in full, like military. Yeah. It's also like weirdly funny and kind of cute that he's like, okay, I need to make a good impression. It's How so do I earnest. do this? <laughs> but again, is. we haven't gotten this like earnest side of him up until this point. So it just feels absurd. Considering like he he feels like a character that should be jaded, not earnest. You know what I mean? Like considering where we opened with him. Yeah, with his foot like almost coming off. Like he's seen shit. He's had a rough time. Like he's... I, I wanted to see him come in like more jaded and grumpy. I feel like if we'd started with just him being assigned out there and maybe he he was like not as happy to be assigned out there, he wanted to be like in the fighting in the glory back east or something, then you could have had this moment and it would have been more like more appropriate. But like the moment itself is funny, but it it makes me even more confused about who this person is. Yeah. Now, I think there was some attempt as he comes across a bleeding woman by a tree and he decides to take her back. Like there's some attempt at showing his like noble leanings and his commitment to being like. Again, the character, the character is a nice guy. Like he's, he's not a bad guy. Like I would say generally a nice person, but he's a boring character. Like nice, generally nice characters don't always make for good characters or fun protagonists. L- let's take a moment right here to talk about it in comparison to another beautifully stunning, sweeping epic. You're going to say The Searchers. Lawrence of Arabia. Oh, Lawrence of Arabia. I was thinking Lawrence, uh, Clint Eastwood. <laughs> you mean John Wayne and Searchers? John Wayne. Oh, God. Why was I oh, saying sweetie. Clint? Uh, oh, this sweetie. is another Hepburn situation, isn't it? Shit. I just, sometimes... <laughs> I, I love you, but sometimes you wound me. I don't know people. Um, I saw his face, but not his name. I know. I know. I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know. It's okay. It's okay. Um, but let's talk about Lawrence of Arabia. In that movie, and if you've gone back and listened to our episodes, I say episodes because it was a two-parter, Lawrence is an incredibly frustrating character. I think you and I both heavily dislike him, but 
he's an interesting character. I don't like him, but I find him interesting. And he has very clear character arcs that happen. And it you can see the progression. And even if you don't like who he starts out to be, who he ends up being, or either, you still are interested and able to kind of watch this character. In this, in Dances with Wolves, Dunbar is like, he's fine. I don't he's dislike the most him. milk toast like representation of a, a like Civil War era soldier that I could think of. It's like it's like he was written to be non-controversial. Like they were trying really hard to not write him to be like controversial in any sense. And they're like, well, he has to be likable and stuff. But it's like you could actually tell a more interesting story with better commentary and deeper mm-hmm. commentary if you have a more flawed character. He doesn't really have flaws. Nah. Like big ones. Except his, his martyr complex, but that's fine. But like some people would see that as nobility and not necessarily a flaw. True. Very true. So I don't, yeah, he's not really flawed. I want him, I want him more flawed. Yeah. But I mean, they, they do lean into the like good character vibes, him bringing this injured member of the tribe back to the encampment. Now I notice he uses the, the flag to bind the wound on her arm. Oh, I didn't notice that. that, that see, ooh. that was a nice little touch. That was a nice little touch of symbolism. You just get a brief shot of it and they don't beat you with it over the head like they do with everything else. Things were so like not subtle that I didn't notice the subtle things. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, but understandably, the tribe is freaked the fuck out. Like there's this random like white settler just riding into camp. So, I mean, the way that they set up this Holding, holding an unconscious member of their community. Yeah, yeah. And it just, oh, it was really, really, really good how you have the one, um, I presume, mother with two kids, like, sounding the alarm and running. And he just doesn't understand why they're so, like, upset about this. And I'm like, come on. Come on. Like, you should. You should you really know. Should. Like, like, this is not. <laughs> like, how scared were you when one member of their tribe showed up at like the place you were at unexpectedly like, you live unexpectedly like remember how worried and scared you were so mm-hmm. now i i do love the like tension built through all of the miscommunication when they finally meet and i it, like so well shot but again the only thing i could think was this is very much john dunbar's view of this and like i'm not like we said getting the any sort of commentary on why this would be extremely terrifying. I mean, I think to a certain understand, you can understand a little bit. I think Graham Greene's doing a lot of heavy lifting in this when mm-hmm. he like runs out to get a stance with a fist because she's his adopted daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, I You have, oh, I forget, is it uh, Wind in His Hair? Yes. Who is like up in Dunbar's face, like yelling at him. There is kind of an interesting bit where I think like Dunbar goes to like wave and stuff. And I was like, it's it's so interesting because you're you're watching just two people who completely don't understand each other's not only language, but like gestures, like gestures and like physicality, like that's a cultural thing mm-hmm. too. So I yeah, I, I thought that was like a very well done scene. Yeah. I still was like, Dunbar, what was your fucking plan, man? Like, <laughs> what did yeah. you think was going to happen? But we do see another one of those tense meetings of the, I'm going to, in my ignorance, call it the tribal council 
but the group of leaders from the tribe talking about what to do about this. And they ultimately decide. God, I love the moment where the chief's like, no, 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 we're going to go, we're going to go talk to him. And he was like, and yeah. And he's like, oh, I'm not going. You're going. I loved that moment. Yeah. It was such like a, a paternal lesson teaching sort of thing. It was, it was great. But th- that meeting when the group of Sue actually come and visit, I also found really funny because we get to hear the commentary, well, read the commentary of the Sue communicating and talking about how this dude has lost his mind, which I think is yeah, his hilarious. Mind, his mind is gone. And I was like, true. It really is. Um, but this is where you get the Wat- Watanka, like the Buffalo uh, exchange, which I think was really great. Yeah, he like shoves the coat, uh, Dunbar shoves the coat like under his shirt so that he has like the buffalo like rounded back and he's like doing the horns with his fingers and being like buffalo, buffalo. And they're like, ah, Tatanka, Tatanka. And that's kind of like the first word that they share. Um, I think that there is like, there's like the goofy coffee grinder scene and like Uh with the sugar (laughs) too, adding the sugar to the coffee. Um, so there's like some funny, like cute stuff in that sequence that I, I did enjoy. Mm-hmm. A lot of it got ruined by voiceover. <laughs> oh, exactly. And so again, just stop, stop telling me, stop, please. You're so, showing me in such a delightful way. Stop telling yeah. me. Yeah. But through all this development here, we do get more time with Stands With Fist, who is the woman uh, member of the tribe that John rescued. And so we we get a flashback, which this flashback is kind of more what I wanted the interactions between the Sue and John to be, where it is, we know exactly what's going on. You're showing us the whole thing. And I'm not hearing you tell me about it. Because <laughs> uh, Stands With Fist, her family were frontier settlers, and a group of who I presume are Pawnee came and essentially killed all of her family. But she was able to run away and was found by Kicking Bird and has since been a member of the tribe. But that was like really good development with of her. So now we know that this one character has potentially some proficiency with English, which I think is so important because um, that's kind of the setup for the rest of the interaction with the Sue yeah. and John. Yeah. When they're there, like I mentioned it earlier, but there is the scene of like him meeting with is he's meeting with kicking bird, I think. And she's acting as translator. And initially, she doesn't want to act as translator. Uh, Kicking Bird has to, like, talk her into it. Mm-hmm. Um, but where you have her, the, the way she's switching into, like, a fluency in Lakota and then, like, struggling to, like, find the right words in English. And, like, you can tell that some of the pronunciation in uh, from Lakota is, like, being used in her English. Like, I don't know. I thought, I thought that uh, Mary McDonald just did like a really good job handling that scene and kind of mm-hmm. handling the uh, transitioning between the two languages. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. I also have a note that I just had to throw out there and I was like, uh, Dunbar has thorough energy. Oh my God. That's so true. Doesn't he? He has so much thorough energy. He's like gone out and communed with the wolves and danced yeah. with them and thus is elevated because of it, which I will like just two seconds. The fact that he ends up with stands with fist, which I'm getting way ahead of myself and leaves is just like, so it pisses me off so much because like he can just like, he, he can, can blend. Leave. He can go back. She can as well. Yeah. The Sioux are totally and utterly fucked. Also, he takes he takes her from like her family. 
I mean, she decides to go, but I, you know, come on. He put her in an impossible position. He put her in an impossible position and they leave. And you're not only are you right, like they can, they can blend. They can move between these two worlds, but also he does it after he has endangered the community even more. Like the community is already in danger like future's not looking good, but then he makes it like even worse. And then it's like, so I'm going to leave now. Yeah. Anyway, that rant will come back, but sorry that with yes. the, the fact that she is also of white descent, like it, uh, uh. yeah. Oh, I do like when, um, kicking bird mispronounces Dunbar as dumb bear. Yeah. <laughs> I, and he's like, no, not dumb bear, not dumb bear. And we're like, yes, dumb bear, dumb bear. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. But I mean, the first time that Dunbar smokes um, a pipe with Kicking Bird, or was it with the chief? I, either way, like there is so much there that is unsaid, but so much that is like showing this like warmth and friendship. And I, I can't put my finger on it, but that that one scene, I was really happy with the acting and the direction. Like so so good and subtle yeah. and just basically in this section there there's like a couple other things that happen there's like the the dream he has about like the buffalo and then he just rides into camp and is like screaming buffalo oh, and they're no, like no, no. and like I, clearly, it wasn't a dream it was like real oh right? it was real was i thought up. it was a dream <laughs> no he was woken up i in my notes have is this a fucking dream so that's just what i saw i mean the way it was filmed with all of the like fog and things made it really creepy and i honestly thought it was really cool um, uh, but like i don't know i was just like yeah i was i was starting to get a little frustrated with things at this point um because like the movie's beautiful and there are some really nice moments but like my god it's slow and i want my there western are no stakes fast. right now like i don't yes like, what, are we, what are we working right towards and and that's the thing like even with this buffalo thing they set up he, he goes and gets the tribe and they are get these beautiful shots of them traveling to the herd and you feel the like pain and sadness when they find a whole herd murdered for their pelts. Oh, I love in the voiceover when he was like, my thought was who would do this? And I was like, you fucking know who would do this dude. Yeah. And then he's like white settlers. And we're like, yes, (laughs) but also you didn't need to say that in voiceover because we, as the audience all knew what had happened. Exactly. Like it was, it was already like, like we had already got the emotional beat. Mm -hmm. and that was just like the mint i mean it was definitely stakes for the the sioux tribe like they they're looking for buffalo so that they can survive like i i get that but it's through dunbar's eyes so like what what dog does he have in this fight or wolf it's also Um, this movie is like almost (laughs) like a series of no i heard you Uh, (laughs) (laughs) i'm sorry i just had a thought and i was like moving on this movie is almost just like a series of vignettes and it it because of that like we don't actually get to build enough tension with any of them to feel like there are stakes like the i saw a buffalo let's find the buffalo oh we get there and they're all dead like that happens really fast yeah but we do get the extension where they go back and do find a live herd group uh yeah and he like saves one of the kids that is about to get trampled but that the way that scene that was like classic western stampede like i i really liked that that i thought was but it's not great but like i have seen better stampedes and i've seen stampede scenes that have more 
stakes. You know what? I'm going to reference a Western that I know you have watched. Red River Red had River. so many more stakes than this. I totally agree. But, <laughs> but think about and think about the stampede scene in Red River and like how that unfolds, how it's shot, how it ends, and how the way it goes down impacts the central story, which is the devolution of the relationship between Montgomery Cliff and John Wayne's characters. So I agree with everything that you're saying about Red River. My only counterpoint would be the saving of the one Sioux youth, you could argue, cements the relationship between Dunbar and the tribe. Now, this, again, is where I think the heavy-handed white savior criticism comes from, because it is 100% that. Like, he not only has found the buffalo, and now he's saved a member of the tribe. So, like, it's it's just heavy-handed. But also, like, their relationship was trending positively, too, yeah, so what was this meant to be? Was that supposed to be like the right. climax of this? Yeah, I'm I'm There's with a lot you. of like <laughs> replication of what should be very satisfying emotional beats, but they like happen so often that you're and like none of them are it's like a lot of little beats instead of one big one, and I don't really like that. Yeah, yeah. So after that we get this celebration scene we get do get a little tension about the like cultural differences with finding things on the plane like one of the sioux members found his hat on the plane (laughs) and was like it's mine now because you left it and that's not necessarily his view of how that would work but i guess they did show them kind of coming to a compromise and learning to kind of talk each other's language not like literally but culturally speaking but so much of that was just not that important in my eyes to like furthering the story or furthering the relationship with him and the Sioux. It's it's a lot of like little things that are happening to where he's spending less and less time at the fort. He's spending more and more time with the Sioux. He's feeling more and more part of the community. You have some bits where he he's you can tell he still feels like he's kind of out on the outside of that. And then you like see him start to feel more and more a part of things, be treated more and more like he's a part of the community. Mm-hmm. You have the whole relationship with stands with a fist uh, growing. Um, the the whole bit with Kicking Bird's wife being like, um, "So she should just like stop mourning now, right?" And he's like, "Why?" <laughs> she's like, "Dumbass." <laughs> She's in love. And he's like, with who? And she's like, oh, my God. Um, so you have, like, that relationship growing and everything. But it's like, I, I, I think, I don't know. It's That's a good summary of that section. Like, there's yeah. nothing I really feel like deserves a lot of, like, detail in that section. And it's not really it doesn't feel like it's really building towards something. So when all of a sudden, apparently there is this all out offensive against the Pawnee, you're just like left with whiplash. Like why I was in this pastoral scene and now all of a sudden I'm in a wartime situation. Like we've also just not seen a ton of the Pawnee, right? Like we saw them kill Temmins and then we get them in the flashback for stands with a fist, but they're not a looming threat. They're not, they're not a looming threat. We're not, directly seeing them and the Lakota compete over resources. Like it's, it seems like it comes kind of out of nowhere, which I guess you could argue that if the movie is from Dunbar's point of view, right? Like he might not be probably isn't aware of like the history and the intricacies there. But like, I just, 
I don't care. Like you still need to give me as the viewer a reason to like follow the through line, like, or give me a through line. You had set Wes Studi up as our big bad. And I was really excited about it because he's such a good big bad. And then you let me down. And even like the, to, to get us to the point of the actual battle, like, and the peak white savior moment, the men go off to battle with the Pawnee. And Dunbar's like, I want to go with you. Uh, <laughs> and they're like, you can't. And I'm like, just, yeah, like, no. Um, and I, I do kind of like that kicking birds like, oh yeah, no. Um, you, you, you know what? You have an even more important job. You need to stay here and take care of my family. And it is a huge honor that I am asking you. Like that, I know in the the way it's it's acted is a little bit more genuine, but I took that as taking bird just being like, I need to get this, I need to get this dude to realize that like this is not his place. So I'm gonna play on his. So honor. I'll distract him like a child. Yeah, but I mean, it does come in handy because he ultimately, like, I, I'm I'm so incredibly torn on how the Pawnee attack goes down. I didn't I didn't like it that much. I thought it was kind of like I was not a huge fan of the fight scenes in the movie. I just didn't think they were that well choreographed. They weren't shot like like I mean they were shot well, but not to the standards of the rest of the movie. And like I just I don't know, like I want I want my fights in my westerns to be amazing. Yeah. And it's like I don't know. He ultimately has to go get firearms to go fight off the Pawnee because of the lack of resources and man, uh, men power, manpower, fighting anyway at the that are left over at the encampment. And uh, I just I have so many conflicting thoughts on that kind of. There's like a whole thing with like the firearms where he's like, no, you can totally just use that because a lot of the people who are remaining at the camper like well we can't we don't know how to use a gun he's like Mm -hmm. oh no you totally can and you'll be able to use it he basically acts like no you've never fired a gun before you'll be able to fire it wonderfully accurately the first time and And it's like that's not actually how that works right like i'm like 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 guns take over bow and arrow because you know you can shoot farther you can shoot more quickly but and also like it is it's deadlier. It's also is easier to train than somebody with a bow and arrow. Like you don't have to basically train since you were a kid to have the, the biggest impact. But I took a a history of military strategy class in college actually. And a lot of that knowledge came in handy in this movie. Um, But it does like, you do have to have some training and like, I don't know. I just, in Dunbar is supposed to be like a soldier and uh, I wasn't seeing it. Uh, so it just, I, yeah, I wasn't that. Hmm. It's fine. It's not actually fine. I wanted more. And I honestly, I thought it was kind of out of character to rather brutally kill the very last Pawnee fighter at the end. I don't know. I mean, they've set him up as a very brutal guy. So I think it's like, I mean, there is kind of the shot of like him surrounded as they like slowly Mm -hmm. begin, the circle begins to close and stuff. And like, he's going to go out fighting. But I just, and again, like it it felt like it was a moment that should have been worthy of like a main villain. Mm -hmm. But like, we hadn't spent enough time with the character or set up enough tension between these two communities for it to feel like it was an earned moment. Yeah. 
So I like the next major beat in the, I guess, overall movie is kind of the development of, um, well, the, uh, maybe not consummation, but the cementing of the romance between stands with fist and John. And can I just say, I did not like his crocodile Dundee get up in this entire sequence. Like what was he wearing? <laughs> like I didn't like it. I don't remember all. it super well. I'm going to be honest. It was that like maroon kind of like patterned shirt with, I think a vest and it just, it felt. I don't remember. I, I didn't fun like peek it. behind the podcast curtain. Um, <laughs> most of this movie, I watched the last thirty minutes last night. But most of the movie, I watched like several days ago because Eden and I were supposed to record this episode several days ago. But we were both in moods and we're yeah. like, <laughs> if we record an episode right now, like we're just like we would not be able to give the movie a fair shake. And I mean, um, if you think so that we we're like recording. roasting it now, it would have been like a complete and utter uh, de- demolition had we recorded then. Yeah. So we're, we're both like, we're like the movie didn't deserve what it would have gotten if we had recorded then. Yeah. So I, yeah. Oh, I have a note that just says I'm bored. I mean, <laughs> at yeah, one point. it's there was this like non sequitur scene at the river with him and stands with fist and them kissing and then kind of sneaking back to the camp and trying to be subtle, but not subtle. And it like, it's kind of cute. There's a lot of like very romanticized voiceover of like the frontier and the Lakota and all of that stuff. I also have a note that is Dunbar is every college freshman that studied abroad over the summer. Oh my God. It's so true in Europe and is now an expert on like Prague. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, 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 and lest anybody think that I'm looking down on people, I'm that was also roasting Ian and I with that sentence. So <laughs> yes. Okay. But like to our credit, I don't think that we tried to pretend like we were experts after we did that. <laughs> No, no, I did not start telling people I was French. Oh, God. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. I guess let's go. We're we're at like the last half hour, right? Where um, they're about to move camp and the stupid fucking journal. Okay, can I just point out for a minute? Like, this journal has not... You could have left the journal. Like, it's not going to lead them to your new camp, right? Like, did you draw a map? No, 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 that's... That's not that's not why he wants the journal, Ian. He wants the journal because it's like the record of all of the stuff he's been through. He wants the journal because he's like, this is important. He It's so important that he got captured by new a new contingent of soldiers that has now manned the fort. Like, I was so fucking angry, Maggie. I was so angry. This was so was stupid too. and so unneeded and was just like this massive left turn that made no sense. I was so mad because like he's been writing in the journal the whole time, but like it's never been expressed as like that important to him. So for me, it came across as like, hey, but my words and experience are so unique and important that like I have to preserve all of my words about them, which to be fair, if he had published that journal back in the day, it probably would have sold like hotcakes because people were super into that (laughs) kind of shit. But like at the same time, I was like, dude, it's not that important. You're not that special. Like, your thoughts and feelings about this are not that. 
important that you need to go back and save the journal. Also, just like what a stupid move. And it's again, he is putting so many just the fact that he doesn't immediately turn around. And I mean, should I expect him to actually understand the cultural interplay that's going on after all of these shit decisions he's made so far? Probably not. But you should have turned well, right hope around. He'd have learned like, something. Ugh. I well, just you'd he, hope. <laughs> he's not smart. He's not a smart guy. So anyway, he I feel like he's just been lucky this whole time. Yeah, pretty much. He had the fortune of interacting with a very welcoming and like pastoral. Had the, had the like, fortune to not get shot during his own stupid actions. Had the fortune that you had a general who thought that was cool reward him to meet a uh, like actually like a welcoming people when like you could have met people who weren't as welcoming and willing to give you a shot like. I just, and, but you know what? That could have been an interesting angle if they had played with like maybe his belief in luck and given mm-hmm. him something like that. Like maybe, maybe that's his fatal flaws. This is a man who believes too much in his own luck, but no. Yeah. So anyway, they treat him as a, well, they treat him like a, you know, a hostile interloper, which I can kind of understand their position there. This is a random dude. Just coming into camp. Here's the thing. They go from zero to 100 real fast. And then when they approach and he's speaking English to his horse because his trusty horse gets shot. He's speaking English in a very American accent to oh, the yeah. horse. You'd think that somebody would be like, hang on, hold up. Also, like, I, he's wearing the uh, Union uniform pants. The hostility that they show towards him in, like immediately felt well okay maybe not immediately because i could see like if they're looking from a distance and all they can think is like we're in hostile territory like i'm Mm -hmm. going to shoot at this person so maybe not immediately but once they like kind of figure out who he is felt very out of proportion well to their credit is not quite the right word um i mean he did he did abandon his post and his orders well and and then refused to speak in English. So like I can I can sort of get why all of a sudden he's a prisoner, but the two there were two characters that were just he like He was a prisoner complete- before that happened though. Like and I know you're talking about was it Spivey? Yeah. Who just fucking sucks. I mean but they like, both die, thank goodness. But uh <laughs> Yeah. They all die. But I just there there is a moment like in the scene where like they already have him in shackles when they start questioning him and I'm like there, it just, it feels like there is a moment where de-escalation would have been the wise thing to do. And no one does it. Also Dunbar just agree to help them bide your time and fucking escape. Again, he's not smart. He multiple times. So now they're like moving him. He's told them to look for his diary because Mm -hmm. that'll confirm everything. Spivey has stolen it. And he's using it as toilet paper, which is like another in a long list of very heavy-handed symbolism moves. So symbolic moves. Yeah, specifically the piece that says uh, dances with wolves, love stands with a fist. Exactly. Which, but like Spivey, like what motivation does Spivey have to keep the fact that he found the journal from people? Like it doesn't make sense. He's, you know, just a bad person and bad people just are indiscriminately bad for no reason. 
obviously. Just like good people are indiscriminately good for no reason. Again, the but simplification of people. that's not entirely true. It, it is. It's so overly simplified. I think that's the issue is that it is all so overly simplified. And I don't, I don't want the simple, Ian. I want the complex and the nuance. Especially if I'm going to be watching it for three, three hours. hours. <laughs> <laughs> so they ultimately do decide to move from the fort. I don't know where or why. He picks why, multiple fights with like, people like an idiot. Again, bide your time. Pick your moment. Yeah, he's not a strategist by any means. No, no, Ian. The man who just ran into no man's land isn't a strategist. <laughs> I know. I am like blowing people's minds with that no. comment. It's yeah. We do get the heartbreaking scene where they do actually shoot two socks, which I was sad okay. at that. Like it, it, it didn't need to I happen. I could have been sadder. I could have been so much sadder. I could have I been sadder. I could have, you know what? And in, in a different movie, I cr- would have cried there. Same. But like, again, it's such a heavy handed symbol of like, oh, look, they're killing the true John Dunbar. Uh, like, I just, and they, we already had the moment with the horse, which I thought was a lot sadder because we had like more time with the horse and like his relationship with the horse is like better established and stuff. Like it just, it felt unneeded. I mean, the whole thing with the wolf, though, is that it has led Kicking Bird and uh, Wind in His Hair and several other people to Dunbar because they're going to save him now. Yeah, which they do in grand fashion at when the soldiers are fording the river. Never ford the this river. This is the best shot fight, but I still think it could have been grander. better. Yeah, I'd agree. I do really appreciate the end where the younger Sue guy does knock off Bauer after <laughs> after like, Bauer like tried to shoot him but the gun was out of bullets and so pistol whipped him yeah to yeah steal the horse yeah I liked that he got to he got to do it himself agreed but it's it's just like I'm I'm while I'm extremely glad that nobody was seriously injured due to Dunbar's bullshit I, it just it could have been though <sighs> again he indirectly put them all at risk because he had to go to back to find his fucking journal and then when he saw that there were people in camp didn't immediately turn and run but their homecoming to the winter camp was kind of grand and sweet and the soundtrack was good so like soundtrack's good throughout some points but really as as we're wrapping up it's it's very clear that he's like okay i i have to leave they're gonna find me i am the reason that they're going to come and massacre the camp here's the thing though whether you're there or not they're gonna come and massacre that camp because in order for them to figure out whether or not you are there they have to go there yes so just he's like if i'm here it puts you in more danger no the fact that you went back to find your fucking journal and now people are going to be hunting for you in general, put them in more danger. Whether you're actually there or not doesn't matter. Yeah. I found the goodbyes and especially the scene with the chief, like very sweet and like showing at the end, how close he had grown with members of the tribe. Also, he just decides to leave and doesn't consult stance with a fist first. He like tells her after. Yeah. Like, what are you going to do? You are married. Oh, yeah, there was a marriage scene that we definitely skipped way over. Um, (laughs) It's it's a cute cute little scene. It's a cute little scene. It is. 
but also awkward that all of a sudden they had to go back into their tent and with everybody being like, ooh, get it. <laughs> like, it's like a more awkward yeah. garter toss. Um, <laughs> oh, God. Get rid of the garter toss. There's the moment where he and Kicking Bird kind of like trade gifts mm-hmm. and he gives Kicking Bird the pipe and Kicking Bird's like, oh, did you finish your pipe? And I was like, was he carving a pipe this whole time? <laughs> I did not Oh, no, Maggie, that was in that. the four hour version. We saw him whittling. <laughs> I'm, I'm making that up. I have no clue. But uh, I, yeah, <laughs> I don't remember. Like, I was like, I have I had no idea. I was like, I feel like this is a reference to something earlier that I completely missed. Or maybe you're right. Maybe it was something that got cut out of like the four hour version. But anyway, I was I was just like, whoa. Yeah. But the like ending set of sequences, I, I appreciated a little, like so much because they were are cutting between the soldiers and the camp and leaving and they're building this suspense like, oh, God, they're closing in. But ultimately, I was just so fed up. With so much at this point, uh, my second to last note is I hate this fucking journal. It would have been better if he'd <laughs> lost it because he's doing his voiceover again. Um, you have uh, Wind in His Hair doing the epic, like standing on top of the cliff as Dunbar and Stance with a Fist are riding out of camp, just shouting repeatedly that he's Dunbar's, or sorry, Dances with Wolves' friend. Y- yeah. Dunbar, I'm going to continue to call him Dunbar. I refuse to call him Dances with Wolves. He continues, like, he, he, like, looks up and then, like, almost embarrassed, like, won't shout it back. And I was like, are you going to just not react to somebody shouting that they are your friend? Ian, if whenever I left, you were like, I, Ian Bailey, am Maggie Kellett's friend, I would shout back, oh, my God, thank you, or something. <laughs> I'd probably make a little heart with my hands and be like, love you. Like I would do something. I wouldn't just ignore you. I would. I mean, or you might, I don't know. I wouldn't. <laughs> I know you wouldn't. I mean, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to make that promise to you right now. I wouldn't. Thank you. I appreciate that. You're welcome. I, I'm, I noticed that you uh, did not make the same promise to me right there, but it's just saying. Okay. But who left who in this situation? <laughs> 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 we about to start arguing about the my my cross country move. No, we don't. I'm just giving you shit like normal. Um, are those boxes still in the back of your video? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not on video, Ian. Oh. We're only on voice today. <laughs> Glorious. I'm anyway. We. I am relieved to know at the end they do not find the tribe. The tribe has moved as. Dunbar has repeatedly asked. So again, one more mark in the saving of the tribe by John Dunbar, the Union soldier. And we get an ending scene of Stands with Fist and Dunbar riding off into the, I would say sunset, but really it was not a sunset. It was more of the mountains. Snow. It's just a lot of snow uh, as a wolf howls in the background. And then we get the... Uh, like that title card thing talking about how 13 I have it up right now actually 13 years later their homes destroyed their buffalo gone the last band of free Sioux submitted to white authority at Fort Robinson Nebraska the great horse culture of the plains was gone and the American frontier was soon to pass into history I just that feels so incredibly reductive and quite frankly unneeded at the end of this I just 
And it also kind of positions the movie as this big, like grand, like documenting of the, I, sorry, I, I just. It makes it feel like the movie is about the Sioux and it's not. Exactly. Exactly. Or at so. least it, it's not. Maybe they thought it was, but it, it like it isn't like it's about it's about Dunbar and should include a good character arc from him. But it doesn't there's there's not really a strong one like his per, his personality doesn't really change. I just I think something that I feel like it always misses context with stuff like that, like when movies talk about the American frontier and stuff is that like. It was a very short period of time. It was like a 30-year period. I mean, America's really young. (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. No, it's very, it's very young, but like I, they could have even leaned more into that because you have some, a line when he's talking to the major before he gets to the, to his posting where he's like, well, I want to see the frontier before it's gone. Yeah. So like, but then they don't like super lean into that. I don't know. There were like, there was like the start of some cool concepts, but we never really got to explore them probably because we were hitting on too many. Yes. I think this is, falls into a similar camp with many of the biopics that we watch where it tries to be like a, and a complete log of everything that happened and yes it's supposed to be an epic yes a lot is supposed to happen but you can't just hit story beats with a hollow character and it'd be okay i mean so let's talk about what are arguably our three most quote-unquote epic films that we've covered on the podcast um also happen to be the three longest running movies we've covered um gone with the wind lawrence of arabia and ben-hur all of those are epic and, you know, for, for all of their flaws, because they're definitely, you know, not perfect. Mm-hmm. And Ben-Hur especially has, like, some pacing issues. But all three of those movies, their main characters have very clear personalities and undergo very complete character arcs. All th- I would say in two of them... Arguably all three, but definitely in two of them, the main character is not that likable either, but they have a very interesting, strong character arc. And those movies have, again, very long run times, but because the movie and, you know, those movies, like they're talking about like very big transitional points in history, but they're so focused in on like that character and that character's experience Mm -hmm. of what's happening that like, you know, and again, definitely flawed, and there are definitely some criticisms to be had for all of those movies, but they make for more interesting viewing than this one because they they have very defined main characters and very defined arcs. Yeah, I agree. And with Dunbar, you like I did get some sense in the very beginning he had kind of a spiritual streak, but in the most surface level way possible. Like you do see him lean into that side of what little personality we see, but it's not a transformation. We don't get any commentary or thought from him on what is happening in the larger context of the frontier, especially as it concerns the Sioux. Like these are now your friends and to some extent, like a chosen family of sorts. And you're just, 
okay with parting ways and not trying to help them. And You're still making decisions that like negatively impact them and put them in danger, i.e. the stupid journal. Yeah. So I, I didn't see development of him and it's just frustrating well and i just didn't have i didn't have a great sense of who he was to begin with i think it would have been much more interesting if we had just started with him being assigned to the frontier and i either i think there's two ways you could go with that either him being super excited and having just this completely like even more romanticized version of things and then mm-hmm. having to discover how inaccurate that was and how it's actually far more complicated than he thought it to be or having him be assigned out there and desperately wanting to be back East and hating it initially and then learning to love it. Yeah, that could have been really cool. I think either of those would have been more compelling narratives. And I think you still could have, explored some of those other themes that they started to throughout the film and probably done them more in depth. Yeah. So anyway, not super pleased, but uh, do we want to do lists? Yeah, let's go. I, I know we've had a lot of criticisms with this movie. Again, like cannot stress that the score and the visuals are stunning. I would say like overall, like I, like I didn't hate it. I would not watch it again, I guess. And I mean, I think that's reflected in the fact that it's now my new number 35, like it is very middle of the pack, but it's also the lowest ranked of the three other epics that you mentioned. So I'm actually slotting it one after Lawrence of Arabia and then one before Patton. So it, I think your comparison to Lawrence of Arabia is so apt. Like we had a character that, yes, we thought was a total fuckboy and did not actually like, <laughs> but he was interesting and had an arc. And then we had the beautiful David Lean visuals, which while they were arguably indulgent, were still so pretty to look at. Um, but we had an interesting arc with this. We got visuals to some extent it was a rang hollow for the rest. And then with Patton, uh, Patton just frustrates me in general. I just, I can't get into that character either for other reasons. That's another one though. I see, I, I rank Patton much higher than you, but that's another one though, where like your main character is not likable, but it's, it's so interesting to watch his downfall. And, and he's a strong character. Like, you have a very strong sense of who this person is. Yeah. I... See, I think in the middle of my list, I do really struggle to some extent to do individual movie by movies as opposed to, like, sections. So, like, I could maybe make an argument that Patton is better in some ways, especially, as you mentioned, with that strong character that I can actually, you know... Un- have some understanding of motivations but while i would never watch Patton again i would maybe watch dances of with wolves again <laughs> oh see i would watch Patton again i've watched Patton multiple times um cool yeah i'm actually going to also it's my new number 35 as well oh, we are we are like in lockstep after this reorder <laughs> yeah it's kind of crazy so it's right after ben her for me which i i think I think Dances with Wolves takes it on visuals and score, but I think Ben-Hur has to take it on like character and just like having the more interesting arc. 
Both are very strong on the symbolism. I like it a little bit better with Ben-Hur, but I also might be willing to give Ben-Hur a little bit more of a pass because it is one, an older movie, and it's also a a biblical epic. Yeah, I feel like it has to be heavy on the symbolism. Yeah, those tend to be a little bit heavier, but there are just some, there are some like really cool, beautiful moments in Ben-Hur. Both, both are, have pacing problems though. But Ben-Hur also has the chariot race and uh, Dances of Wolves does not have the chariot race. Um, this would put it right above Driving Miss Daisy. I think Driving Miss Daisy had a little bit clearer time of like what exactly it was trying to say. I think you do have like some of the same issues with like underwritten characters. And yeah, yeah, I'm just, it's you know, like it's, it was fine. I didn't hate it. I didn't yeah, love I've it. I've watched it a fine. lot of worse movies. I'll put it that way. <laughs> yeah, oh, yes. Yes. I've um, specifically watched how many worse movies? 28 worse movies. 28. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, not one. I mean, maybe worth an airplane watch. Honestly, anything under about number 2530 or so. I is like airplane material for me, which I know is kind of um, fighting words, but that's, that's not, just me. That's not necessarily <laughs> true for me um, because Life of Emile Zola is my number 33 and I adore that movie. I just also fully recognize that it has some issues. Yeah. Well, that's Dances with Wolves. So um, next time I... I know that we're approaching Maggie's uh, most dreaded Best Picture winner uh, with Silence of the Lambs from 1991. So I, I don't am, know. Honestly, I've been brainstorming special episodes to see if I can delay it. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, I'm not sure if we're going to do that or silence or what. But we're going to be back with another episode of something. And hopefully it's entertaining. <laughs> Until then, you can find us on social media. We are at Best Pictures Pod on both Instagram and Twitter. Definitely a little bit more active on Twitter. Um, be sure to follow us. Let us know what you think of Dances with Wolves. Um, you know, if you agree with stuff we said, if you really love the movie, and maybe you have like some stuff that we missed about it. If you want to email us in, we are Best Pictures Podcast at gmail.com. And then join us next time for um, what I think Ian's hoping will be Silence of the Lambs and what I'm hoping will be a special episode. So we'll see.